Thank you, choir. And while they are transitioning, just uh, began today with sort of a new bulletin piece. And uh, if you're here for the first time, a lot more information about our church, fill this out, tear it off and drop it in the offering plate. And uh, a little bit of changes in what we had in the past. So these are COVID adjustments. And so I hope that you enjoy this new format. And then uh, remember, right after the service, if you're a member of our church today, we have a special called church business meeting um, that uh, we need to vote on how to dispense with the budget excess from this past fiscal year. Father, bless now your word and thank you for being our great and holy and good and righteous and just God. And Lord, we pray that as we continue to ponder who you are and what you have done and how you have revealed yourself to us, that, Lord, we would grow, Lord, in our awe and our wonder at who you are in your name and, indeed, Lord, our fear and respect of you being our holy God, yet so filled with love. And we pray now you'd bless this time in your word together, accomplish all that you want through it. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I saw a news article in the past several days about a man who was arrested in Kentucky, where I used to live, allegedly for leaving his disabled wife in a hot truck for several days. His wife, who suffers from cognitive uh, problems and some difficulty walking, he'd asked her to take her to the hospital, and that's all I'm putting up is a picture of the hospital, not of the man or his wife. You can look it up if you care to see that or his picture. But anyway, he is uh, her legal guardian and caregiver, and so instead of taking her to the hospital, he, she was in the truck, and for five days, he allegedly just left her in the vehicle. Temperature over those days was often in the 90s. It's not clear whether or not he gave her water or food during that time. She screamed and begged to be taken to the hospital, but he continued to refuse Five days later, when he showed up with her at the hospital, in that hospital there in Frankfurt, she was literally sticking to her seat. The vehicle was covered with her waist, it was leaking out of the doors, and they had to call EMS to bring a lift to get her out of the truck to care for her. Her body was covered in sores, and nurses said that her skin was deteriorating. She had gangrene on several locations of her body. As far as I know, she's still in the hospital, certainly needs our prayers. He was arrested and charged with first-degree criminal abuse, and his bail was set at $10,000. You know, someone has said about the human race that, quote, humans on the one hand seem to be almost gods, reaching to the stars. On the other hand, they seem to be devils, capable of cruelty not found in the animal kingdom. And that seems to be true. Well, we are now well into a series in which we're seeking to understand our faith, the Christian faith, from the ground up. This today brings us to the seventh message. So far, we have looked at uh, introductory matters, that our faith is centrally about Jesus and having an eternal relationship with God through him. The truth about God and his eternal plan has been handed down to us in the Holy Scriptures. 
And so we have looked at the inspiration, the authority, the reliability, and the preservation of the Bible and recommended a couple of books along that line you can purchase in the bookstore or order there. And we'll recommend books as we go through this series. In the past two messages, we have begun unpacking what the Bible teaches about creation. And last week, we saw that God's highest creation recorded in the book of Genesis is humanity, human beings. And yet soon after completing his creation of humanity and declaring it good, we find that things go really wrong in the creation. Adam and Eve sin when tempted. The creation becomes warped in many ways. Work becomes frustrating. Childbirth becomes incredibly painful. Stress develops between the husband and the wife. A son, Cain, soon kills his brother Abel. And by the time we come to Genesis chapter 6, God is ready to wipe out the human race. Now, we will look at the fall. That's the term for what happens in Genesis 3 when humans fall into sin and disobedience and begin to suffer the consequences. We'll look at that in more detail in the weeks ahead. But today, I want to touch upon the overall question that kind of comes before the fall and its development, and that is, why is there evil in a world that is declared good by a God whom the Bible teaches is all-powerful, all-good, and who is the ruler of all? And you know, this is perhaps one of the hardest questions we have to answer, and you sometimes may get this question. Some of these messages I will do, not a lot of them, but this is one, would fall kind of in the line of a defense of the faith or apologetics or giving you some uh, ammo by which to talk about the faith in light of hard questions, some, some arrows for your quiver. So the series title is True Lines, and the title of this message today is Evil in God's Good Creation. You know, no worldview or explanation of the world can avoid dealing with questions about pain and suffering and malevolence in the world. To me, though, the view found in the Christian scriptures is the most complete, satisfying, and true. And in this series, I'm talking to you about how I process the faith for myself as well. So while with our limited knowledge of things, we'll never know all the answers to this question about evil, we can find, I think, in the Word of God some realistic answers, and so that is my focus this morning. So if you would open your Bibles, and we'll start today. This is not just taking one passage and preaching on it. We'll look at a number of scriptures today. So we begin in Genesis 1.31, at the end of the first part of the creation story. Chapter 2 focuses in particular on the formation of the man and the woman individually. But chapter 1, verse 31 is the end of the big presentation of creation. And the Bible says, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning. The, sixth, the sixth day. And then in Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. And you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, or will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And then in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 through 8, just scriptures reiterating what I said in the beginning. Genesis 6, verse 5, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I have made them but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You know, when we think about evil in the world, one of the key ways we can talk about why it is with us or why we see it is by talking about the fall of mankind that we read there in Genesis chapter 3. Certainly all of creation has been affected by the fall. The world is broken. The image of God in us has been shattered like a fractured mirror. We still see it, but it is fractured. The creation itself longs to be remade. Paul says that in Romans 8, and I'm not going to take time to turn and read verses 20 through 22, but he talks about the whole creation is groaning to be remade, to have a fresh start. And we, he says, groan as well in our own bodies for things to be made right again. And again, we'll dig into this concept more in the days ahead. But before we get into that, again, we must go back a bit and talk about why God made a world in which the fall would even be permitted. If he is all-knowing and he is all-powerful, how do we account for the fact that he chose to build a world knowing this would develop and then allowing it? Now, I hear this question again posed a lot from contemporary culture and from people who are believers like you who get challenged in this matter from unbelievers. Let me just talk about this today. A little bit different type of a message, but I hope that uh, it will help you as you think through these issues. I don't ever remember in my life growing up uh, anybody ever preaching on this. And so you may say, well, you're stupid to try to address this in the pulpit. Well, maybe I am. But I feel we need to know these things. And I feel you need to be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is within you. Now, I'm giving you a big shotgun blast, but I hope it kind of pushes you along to think about these things. So let me kind of walk down three trails with us this morning. First of all, when we think about evil in the world, the scripture reveals that God chose to create a real world of moral agents like us, the ability to make moral decisions, who in the beginning had free will. In the beginning, mankind and the angels had free will. And so when we think about evil, when we think about evil as being present in a very real world, Christianity and Judaism, they stand apart from other worldviews. Now, I don't have time to do a lot of comparison, but some of the other worldviews kind of go down this trail when thinking about how do you deal with evil in the world, about how do you deal or process God allowing a world where a guy would leave his wife in a truck for five days. His wife. Well, as we think about other worldviews, such as atheism or naturalism, that view of the world teaches that the world and the universe are all just an accident of space and time. 
It's all an accident. You're an accident. I'm an accident. There is nothing beyond this closed universe. We are all there is. And we are nothing special. It's just an accident. And we're all destined to become extinct as a world and as a universe. All this is going to wear out and it's going to be extinct. There will be nothing. And so in this view of the world, there is no one, no God to whom we are ultimately responsible And in that approach to life, as we've noted before, there's really nothing that is either right or wrong in any ultimate moral sense. Therefore, in that view of the world, evil is not real because ultimately there's nothing that is right or wrong objectively. You can't say anything's right or wrong because it's all just an accident of time. Even your cells and your brain, the way you're wired, is just an accident of time. And so therefore, evil is not real in this view because nothing is ultimately right or wrong. Everything is predetermined by nature. Now, in our soft Western cultures, like here in the United States, where we have pop-level practical atheism, we have a lot of people that are practicing practical atheists, or if they believe in God, they don't have any clear picture put together. We hear a lot of people in our culture today saying that, uh, you know, we can't really hear from God. There's no God. There's nothing there. But we can come together around shared values and build a moral world. We can have shared value. You hear the the word values a lot? Your values, right? That is, we can construct a moral framework ourselves by coming to consensus of what is acceptable behavior and thought and what is not. So now we have companies, corporations acting like religious organizations saying and telling us what their values are, their corporate values. We have social media companies, do we not, like Twitter and Facebook and others who block people who will go against their community values. They'll send you a note, this goes against our community values. Shape up, in other words. But, you know, in essence, with all this talk going on about values in this movement in our country that seems to be very popular right now, people who are approaching life that way, they can't say that anyone or any group who goes against their values is evil or ultimately wrong. It is all their opinion. Or to personalize it and get a little close to home. You may think racism goes against your quote-unquote values, or the values we should all agree upon to build a moral world or a just world. We hear the word justice a lot, don't we? But again, if God does not exist, there is no ultimate thing called justice or evil or right or wrong. If God does not exist, all of that is just your values. Your opinion is another word for values. You know, certainly someone like Hitler and a few of you in this room were probably still, you were living back during that time. Someone like Hitler, who lived only a little over a generation ago, who wanted to build a super race and wipe out a race he saw as inferior, he would laugh at your values, would he not? He wouldn't care about your values. And today, Even today, try and sell this values idea to the leader of North Korea or the leader of China, the communist China who's premier, the head dictator of that atheistic communist party, 
Chairman Xi said last Thursday, any nation who gets in the way of China's priorities, quote, he said, will find their heads bashed bloody against a great wall of steel. <laughs> That's his view of values. In his mind, there is no real thing called evil or good. The only right is what advances his wants, and that is to dominate the world. That's how the real world works. If you're an atheist, that's how it really works. And so that's one way of looking at the world. Some other worldviews, like those found in Hinduism or in uh, an old cult, the Christian science cult in our country, founded by Mary Baker Eddy. She's been dead a long, long time, but they just opened a reading room in North Anderson up there close to the uh, Texas Roadhouse. It's an old cult, and you don't see them around much, but I saw the other day a reading room there. I'd never noticed it before. In their view of the world, they hold that everything material, like your body, everything is just an illusion. And the only ultimate thing is spirit. And so in that, all evil is an illusion as well. Even sickness and death are an illusion, which caused them some difficulty when she died and didn't come back. There's a little bit of comparison. But what about the Christian view? In the Christian view, as we think about evil in the world, we view the world as rooted in Scripture. We believe that a good God created a real world that is material and spiritual, that he declared it all good, as we read in Genesis 1.31, yet it was made with the potential that things could go wrong, and they did. Evil is real. There are things that are right and things that are wrong. There's real suffering, authentic pain, sincere grief, bitter tears, searing memories, and furthermore, there is a deep sense of a need for justice in the world, in our hearts. And that's very real. That comes from the fact that we're made in the image of God. And in our worldview, justice will be upheld in the end. And so the Bible is very honest about these things compared to other views of the world. The Bible is very honest. That somewhere between Genesis 1.31, when God said, everything is good that I have made... In Genesis 3, 1, where we see the serpent, whom Jesus tells us later is Satan, a fallen angel showing up, tempting humanity. Somewhere between those two verses in the Bible, our view says that evil arose first when one of the angels that God had made chose to rebel against the Creator. He was apparently joined by others. And then he led humanity into sin, and so all that had been declared good was marred. And we hear echoes of that in a couple of passages in the Bible. And so in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, the apostle Peter writes, he says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, so here we see the allusion to angels sinning against God and falling under judgment. And then in Jude, verse 6, only one chapter in Jude, written by Jesus' half-brother, Jude writes and says, And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. 
There is more that we talk about, and we will in the future, but that's enough for our purposes today. So what can we say? And others have said this better than I can say it, is is, is this, that God who is all-knowing and all-powerful and good and wise, he chose to create. He didn't have to, but he chose to create, and he considered that preferential and preferable to not creating. He chose to create life. And furthermore, since he chose to make humans in his image, and he chose to make the angelic realm, he chose to make us not as androids or robots, then there had to be the real possibility that in created free beings, the choice to rebel, to do wrong, to resist was really there. So God didn't make you as a robot. He didn't make Lucifer as a robot. He made real beings for a real world. In the beginning, who had absolute free will with the potential that they would choose to do the wrong thing. And God chose to do that because he chose to believe and think and know that it was better to create and not to create. And so as one theologian put it, for God to prevent evil, he would have had to make humanity other than it is. Or the same person said, evil was a necessary accompaniment For us to be human, that is, originally free beings, able to make true choices in a real concrete world. So that's one reason that we see the world as as it is. But then secondly, as we think about the world and we use the word evil, even before the fall that we read about in Genesis 3, a real world that God was going to make in which we're going to live, that has to have certain factors in it for us to live and breathe and move and have our being, well, that world had to have the potential for pain and hurt. You know, evil is a word that we can apply in many ways. There is moral evil in which a person does something wrong, like the guy who put his wife in that truck and left her fired. It's like another guy in Texas that got arrested yesterday for setting his mother's house on fire and killed his brother. His mother barely survived when they told him about it. He kind of laughed that she, she made it and escaped. And he said he was killing them because they didn't want to follow the Bible. And he was trying to burn the evil up. That happened yesterday. And there is that type of moral evil in the world. And there's also natural evil that grows up in a broken world like hurricanes and volcanic eruptions and earthquakes. And it seems that in the natural order of the world, for there to be life as we know it with some semblance of order to it, there had to be the uh, possibility for things to go wrong in the world. The world has water and oxygen and fire. And while those things are necessary to live, they can also destroy us. Can they not? The same water you can drink of necessity to have life here, when you get a lot of it together, it can drown you as well. Same thing is true with fire. Oxygen is misused. And while, again, they can be there to help us to live, they can also destroy us. And, you know, God could intervene in all situations, but he has chosen not to for his greater purposes. And so the world of necessity has the potential to hurt us. So men make hammers to build things. There were hammers, I'm sure, used on this beautiful building 20-something years ago. Right? 
But sometimes men take hammers and they hit somebody else in the head. And they don't become daisies when they do. I mean, God could have made hammers where they're hammers, they're hard when they build something and somebody else hurts somebody, it becomes a daisy. But it'd be kind of hard to live in a world like that. There has to be some order in the world. And so for the world to be real and functioning, some things are fixed of necessity and they can help us or they can hurt us. And that's not necessarily something that's evil, but we talk about evil that comes out of that type of hurt. But beyond this, as we talk about evil in the world, we must sometimes uh, come to see that uh, what we sometimes view as evil is not evil at all, but rather it is an ultimate good. Even pain in a real world hurts us. And sometimes people call it pain and suffering. It can be good, right? The way the world is made. Our bodies are meant to feel pain, and sometimes that pain ultimately helps protect us from greater harm. Like a small burn on a stovetop can warn us of greater danger. We all remember from our childhood, at least I do, putting my hand on a hot stove. I never touched the hot stove again, right? So while that was painful and it was suffering, it ultimately was something that was good. And furthermore, other types of pain in this life, according to the Bible, are to be seen in the light of the role they play in an ultimate greater good. That's what the song, Be Thou My Vision, is talking about. That no matter what I'm going through here, you be my vision, Lord, of what you're doing in the world, what your ultimate plan is in the world. Help me to get the right perspective on what I'm going through in the world by understanding you and you be my vision. And isn't that what Paul was talking about in the passage Andrew read for us in our scriptural call to worship in 2 Corinthians 4, 13 through 18? And just drawing upon that, Paul said, talking about suffering, he says, Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we're being renewed day by day. And listen, he says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And so what you and I may experience in this life, it may be suffering. In one sense, it may not be good. But in how God has built the world in his ultimate plan, it ultimately is good. And we think about this when you go to a passage like Romans chapter 8. If you would turn there with me for just a moment, I want you to look at this one because it's one that we often quote when things go wrong in life. And we experience evil and suffering and problems in life. So let's look at Romans chapter 8, verse 18 first. Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That's what he just said when we read in 2 Corinthians a moment ago. Down in verse 28, would you read it out loud with me? You know it, some of you know it by heart. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Well, he doesn't say everything is good because a lot of things in one sense are painful and and harmful. And he says, God works for the good. But what is the ultimate good God is working for in your life? It is not that God is working that you may be comfortable in this life or everything goes smoothly for you in this life. That is not God's ultimate good that he is working for in your life. 
Paul tells us in this same passage of what he is working for in relationship to that. Pick up in verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined, listen, to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. The point is, is that God is working through all the things that we face in this life that sometimes we call evil and suffering, heartache and pain. He is working in them for our good. And so in that sense, they are ultimately work out to be good. But what is the good? It is that I become like Christ. That's God's vision. That's where he is going. And so as we think about pain and suffering in the world, that's how we should learn to process our personal experience with pain. And that is why there is evil, why God allowed it into the world in the first place. It is to work for our ultimate good. Our tendency, though, when we go through suffering, our tendency is to look at the experience, what I'm, what I'm feeling, what I'm going through, to process situations through my feelings, which are very real. But we must, in faith, move above those feelings to what we ultimately believe about God and about His faithfulness, His promises, His ultimate purposes. And that is how we can live ultimately with joy and peace in the midst of the tears this life brings. You see, I, listen, I could never develop to all that God intends for me to be apparently and all that God intends for me to do apparently both here and in eternity without somehow wrestling with the evil and the brokenness in this world. Now, a good example of this truth would be a man named Joseph in our Bibles. You remember the story of Joseph? You may recall that his brothers sold him into slavery when he was just a boy. They lied to their dad about what had happened, that Joseph had been killed. Joseph's taken down into Egypt sold into slavery, and he goes through a lot of hard situations, hard years, false accusations, prison, loneliness. But God uses that and works in his life to bring him to be second in leadership over all of Egypt. And in that position, God used him to, to prepare Egypt for a coming famine that was going to last for seven years. And because of his work during that famine, there was food for the Egyptians and those around them, and eventually... His brothers, who didn't know he was there or even alive anymore, they came to get food for the family. And they had to face Joseph. And he ultimately revealed who he was to them. In time, the father found he was alive and all of the family relocated to Egypt. And Israel was spared extinction from the famine. And after their father died, though, his brothers expected Joseph to get his revenge Sort of like in The Godfather, when the mother died, Fredo got axed. And that's what they thought was going to happen to them. And they come and beg Joseph not to kill them. And it grieves Joseph's heart. But you remember in Genesis chapter 50, verses 18 through 21, what Joseph said, his brothers came and threw themselves down before him, we're your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. You intended evil for me. But God intended it for good 
to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Well, here we see all of this brought together. There's a real evil here. God has somehow allowed it. And yet Joseph knew that God had a higher purpose of good through it, both for his life and for the world. And so God has allowed evil, but evil is always under his dominion. He is not responsible for it. He is never conquered by it. And for his people, he and his eternal plan, he is working through it for an ultimate good. So evil and suffering are not senseless ultimately. They are not meaningless ultimately. Because God is working good things through what he has allowed to take place. Thirdly and quickly, as we think about this issue then of evil in the world, we can finally say that God has allowed evil temporarily. He's allowed evil temporarily among his people, his ultimate family, his saved people. He has allowed it temporarily to reveal his ultimate glory. We've been singing about God's glory this morning. And so he's temporarily allowed it to reveal and display his full glory. You know, our world has forgotten who the God of Scripture really is. We have developed this serpy sentimentalism that sees God as a God of love. But by love, what people mean when they think about God in our culture is some doting old slobbering fool who just dotes on everybody in the world. But no, the God of Scripture, He is a God of fierce love. And He is out to remake the world and to make everything new. He does not age. He does not change. He does not get tired. And His purposes will be fulfilled. But not only is God loving as our choir was singing right before I stood up today, what was the theme of that song? God is also what? Y'all weren't listening to the song, were you? They don't even listen to you, Kevin. What was the song? God is what? At least the choir say it. God is what? Holy. There you go. He is holy. And what does that mean? Well, God being holy means that He is pure. He is just. And we see all of these ideas wrapped up in what happened to Moses in the book of Exodus. You remember Moses, he's leading the people out of Israel. They come to Mount Sinai. They get the Ten Commandments. He comes down. They're worshiping the calf. He breaks them. He's angry. He goes back up on the mountain to get the, uh, the uh, tablets a second time, the Ten Commandments. And in the midst of all that, Moses said to God, he said, God, show me your what? Glory. Do you remember that? Show me your glory. And God says, Moses, you, you cannot see me in all of my glory. You can't see my face. But I do want you to notice in Exodus chapter 34, verses 4 through 7, what God does when he shows him his glory. God proclaims something about himself. So in Exodus 34, in verses 4 through 7, Moses chiseled out the stone tablets like the first ones. The Lord comes down in a cloud, stood there with him, proclaimed his name, the Lord. In verse 6, Exodus 34. Here's God showing his glory. He passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. He's loving, slow to anger, abounding in love 
and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. There's the love of God. Yet he's also holy because he goes on to say, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. There's God's justice. And so in revealing himself to us, God wanting to show himself ultimately to us, it appears that evil was allowed to be a part of God's plan for his glory to shine most clearly. You know, it's only on the blackest nights that the stars appear most bright, right? In the blackest of nights, the stars appear the brightest. And God revealed his full glory in the creation as being loving and being holy, and he did that most clearly at the cross. It was at the cross when Jesus died where God's love and justice are seen. God pouring out his love to save a people and receiving the justice of the world into himself due to the evil that he's allowed that he might forgive us and remake the world. I love this God. He has not shielded himself from the worst of things that he's allowed to come. He's put himself right in the middle of it and taken the brunt of it, has he not? Of its ruin. And it was there at the cross that he conquered evil as part of his plan to take us to the best of all possible worlds, his people that he is saving, his family. And so in the end, his redeemed people will live in light of his eternal love and no evil will be there. The devil and those who reject the Lord will live under the eternal wrath and justice of God. And so his full glory is displayed. His love, his eternal love is displayed. And listen, his eternal holiness and his eternal justice is displayed in both heaven and in hell. And so that's why God allowed evil in a third way is to totally show us who he is as fully Loving, but also fully holy, fully just. So as I wrap this up, listen to a few scriptures this morning. Revelation 20, verses 7 through 10. This is bringing us to the end of the God's vision. Ex Revelation 20, verse 7. And the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations and the four corners of the earth. He talks about war that he leads. But he says in verse 10, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet have been thrown. They will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse 11, he saw a great white throne. That's the angels that have sinned. And he doesn't redeem any of those fallen angels. But then I saw a great white throne in him who was seated on, and the earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. And then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. That's God's eternal justice on the unredeemed. Chapter 21, verse 4, following, he talks about 
the new heaven and earth, and ultimately God's going to wipe all tears from their eyes, verse 4. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for those who are followers of Christ, for the old order of things has passed away. In verse 27, about that, that coming place, that new Jerusalem, the new city, nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. You see, God is showing His eternal glory for eternity. And evil has been allowed to play a part in that to show us ultimately who He is. And isn't that what Paul is saying? If you go ahead and stand, I want to read one other verse. One other thing Paul is saying that reminds us of this is Romans 9, 22 through 24, where Paul says, What if God... Verse 22, Romans 9, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, that's his justice, bore the great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory? That is, because God shows his justice and I've experienced His grace and not His justice, I'm able to appreciate more His glorious grace in my life for all of eternity. In light of how He has played out evil and dealt with it in the world. There are several other things I have here. I'll come back and regroup on those in the future. But let me pray. We'll come to a time of commitment. Father, thank You for being a great God and Lord, we thank you for being loving and also for being righteous. And Lord, while you permitted evil, it is never in control. Satan is never in control. You're not responsible, Lord, for it originating, though you permitted it. And now you, Lord, work through it for your ultimate revealing of yourself, of your great glory. God, what a great story. What a better explanation than any that I know of in the world. And I firmly planted my feet upon it. I believe it. And I just pray, Lord, that each of us would um, process our pain and our suffering through the vision of you and what you're doing. and That ultimately you're working good because you are good. And I pray, Lord, that all of us will make sure we know where we are in that story. Have we trusted in Jesus? We're covered by your love and shielded from your justice. And I just pray that each of us, Lord, will make sure we've called upon you. Put on our hearts, people, Lord, that we need to talk to about these things and to learn more about these things. People who are bitter over the evil in the world. And they don't have a template by which to process it. And they're angry with you. They're angry with life. Lord, you want us to learn to be the witnesses and missionaries to them so help us to learn these things to be willing to think a little harder and father i pray for others today who may need to come to become a part of this fellowship to say publicly through baptism that uh, they've settled on the right side of eternity we just pray that whatever lord you lead people to do that father they would feel free to to move just bless now this time of commitment in jesus name